Our scripture reading this morning is, as it was last Lord's Day, taken from Luke, the second chapter, verses 1 to 20. Please turn with me then in your Bibles to the New Testament, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, where we begin reading at the first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And thus far the reading of God's Word. Last week, we took up the question of the humiliation of the Christmas story, the well-known Christmas story, and I asked you to consider what the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas is from the standpoint of the secular world, from the standpoint of humanist thought. And we notice that humanist really sees upon the words of the King James Version of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the message of the angels, which is perhaps not as accurately translated as it might be. For there we read, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth goodwill to men. Humanists think that that is basically the meaning of Christmas. And if that is the meaning of Christmas, if we're supposed to be good to one another, have a neighborly attitude and seek world peace, why do we tell the story about a little baby who was born in a stable somewhere and laid in a manger? And what I suggested to you last week was that humanists continue to tell that story, even though they don't believe in the deity of Christ, They continue to tell that story because it illustrates so well the need for peace on earth and goodwill to men. It shows us the terrible 
terrible and humiliating circumstances under which this child was born, the political oppression, the social ostracism, the physical deprivation. It shows us all these terrible things and so illustrates the need for the humanist meaning of Christmas. And then we notice at the very end, however, that humanists have not found the true humiliation of this story. For the true humiliation of this story is that God stooped to become a man. That Jesus, though he had all the glory of the Father and dwelt with unapproachable glory from all eternity, nevertheless left his throne of glory and became a man and became a mere baby and died a criminal's death for the sake of us. Well, that's the humiliation of the Christmas story, but we like to think of the glory of the Christmas story. And so this morning I want to ask about the glory of the Christmas story. What is it all about? Where do we find glory in this story? What is the glory of Christmas? The answer is all around you. What is the glory of Christmas? It begins, well, it used to begin the weekend of Thanksgiving, didn't it? It uh, has begun earlier than that now for many years. We see the glory and the glorification of the Christmas story and the Christmas decorations that go up shortly after Halloween now, sometime in the month of November. The merchants understand the glory of the Christmas story, don't they? In fact, I commented a few times to members of my family how wonderful it was to see the merchants love Jesus so much that they have their stores open longer hours at this time of the year. Uh, that obviously indicates that they uh, care for the Lord so much. The glory of the Christmas story. Well, you know the children understand the glory of the Christmas story, even if you don't get my drift. What is the glory of Christmas for a child? Now, we have taught our children, and they dutifully say from time to time, that it's not really presents that they're interested in. They're happy that Jesus was born. And I think that uh, child's profession of faith is an important one. I don't want to minimize it. But you know how difficult it is for a child to say that, to say it without some lingering sense of hypocrisy, to say it truly and fully. It's difficult for us to say it, isn't it? Is there anybody here who doesn't enjoy receiving a gift? The glory of Christmas is all these wonderful things that are given. The glory of Christmas is giving presents. Ask anybody out in the world. They know that. They know that's what the Christmas season is all about. That's why the merchants start so early. That's why they keep their stores open so late. That's why the decorations are up for so long. It's to encourage us to buy presents and to give to one another. That's what children glory in. That's why all this week, if you've read your papers, you've seen every day some story about somebody knowing the true meaning of Christmas because they took presents to children who wouldn't have them. That's the meaning of Christmas. Or so the world would tell us. Well, this week I want to reverse direction with you and tell you that in this particular case, the world got it right. That is the glory of Christmas, giving. And I'd like you to see that as we consider the text before us. You know, people often have real difficulty with Christian theology, with what Christianity propounds. For what the Bible asks men to believe is often a stumbling block, a stumbling block to many. They find faith hard. Just consider the atonement. Really, how can men believe that one man who was executed upon a Roman cross put away the sins of the world? 
How can you believe that one man's death could possibly have that kind of significance? Why should there be that kind of theological importance to the death of one good man? Or how can an ancient fact of history about a man dying on a cross have any bearing on my relationship to God today? That's something that took place years ago. It may illustrate something. It may have been important in its time, but how can it affect my day-to-day ongoing relationship with God today? Or consider the resurrection. How can we expect modern men to believe such a thing? It may be one thing during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, when people's minds were filled with superstitions anyway. It may be one thing for them to believe in a resurrection, but we know that dead bodies don't come back to life. We've all been to funerals. We all know the, the terrible, depressing truth about death. You know, it'd be a lot easier for men to believe, wouldn't it, that the disciples just stole the body or that he never really died and just kind of revived there in the tomb. It'd be a lot easier to believe those things. And even if you can believe that the body was dead and came back to life, how can you possibly believe that he emerged from the tomb with unending bodily life in a glorified state? It's one thing for a body to come back to life, but to come back to life in a glorified state, in a state that will never die. Consider the miracles of Christ. Do you really believe that Jesus walked on water. That he walked on water. I mean, healing people, we might be able to accept that. We know there's psychosomatic problems and there are faith healers throughout history, that sort of thing. But walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, can we really believe that he raised people from the dead and read men's minds? You see, questions like these pose real intellectual problems for people. And because of questions like these, minds are deeply perplexed about the Christian viewpoint. How can we believe all these things? There's real problems with Christian theology. However, in our tremendous book written by J.I. Packer, entitled Knowing God, the author says, in fact, the real difficulty because the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Packer says, the problem with Christian, there are many problems with Christian theology, many things that stagger the mind, many things that make faith difficult for modern men, but the real difficulty is not found in any of those things we've been talking about, having to do with atonement or resurrection or miracles. The real difficulty has to do with the Christmas story, has to do with the message of incarnation, that God became man. You see, there's the real stumbling block to Jews. There is the real stumbling block to Muslims. There is the real stumbling block to Unitarians and to Jehovah's Witnesses. And in fact, it's the stumbling block to all of those of a rationalistic, autonomous mindset in philosophy, in their view of life, that God should become man. It's because of a lack of acceptance of this point 
in Christian theology that people have problems elsewhere with what we have already listed. It's because of the Christmas story that people stumble at Christianity. You see, if Jesus were no more than a remarkable man, compassionate and good, effective as a teacher, perhaps the best of the Hebrew prophets, if he was in his very being no more than what can be said of us, no more than what can be said of any normal human being, then the difficulties one experiences in believing the biblical account of his miracles, the difficulties we have in believing his atoning death and victorious resurrection are insurmountable. If the Christmas story is wrong, then all the rest is wrong too. You see, without the incarnation, without Jesus being God made man, Christian faith must come to grief. Christian theology and the weight of the biblical story balance delicately upon that crucial point that Jesus was more than a man, more than a good man, more than an exemplary man, more than a supremely religious man, more than even an angel of God. Christian theology loses its internal credibility. It loses its coherence. It loses its power if Jesus is not seen as God's Son in human flesh. But once the Christmas story and the doctrine of incarnation are affirmed by the mind and believed from the heart, then almost instantly every other difficulty with Christian theology dissolves. It just fades into the air. In his book entitled Miracles, C.S. Lewis has a chapter entitled The Grand Miracle, and it begins with these words. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. You know, he's absolutely right. If Jesus was very God of very God, as Athanasius put it, then there should be no problem whatsoever in accepting his miracles. No problem at all in accepting his atoning death. No problem at all in accepting his resurrection to unending life. You see, if Jesus is the one who created the heavens and the earth and all of their intricacies and all of their physical laws, then there should be little wonder that he could multiply loaves, that he could walk on water. He made the water. If Jesus was the one who called out Abraham, and gave him a promise. If he's the one who made Moses his spokesman to deliver the Hebrews, if he's the one who instituted the temple service and the atoning sacrifices, if he's the one who promised David a messianic deliverer who would know victory despite rejection, if he's the one who inspired Isaiah to write about the suffering servant of the Lord, then it's not at all incredible that his death should have momentous and saving significance. If Jesus is the one who gave life to all of creation, if he's the one who inspired the prophets and Moses, if he's the one who told of his resurrection, it's little wonder that the God-man should rise from the dead. Indeed, if he's God the Son, 
it would have been far more startling if he had remained dead and not risen from the grave. Once you accept the Christmas story, all the rest falls into place. All the rest, though it's miraculous, though it may be incomprehensible to the human mind, all the rest is but little difficulty. Once we grant that Jesus was the Son of God in human flesh, it becomes unreasonable to find fault with the rest of the mysteries of Christian theology. You see how it all comes down to this point? This is the glory of the Christmas story. The incarnation is the central piece to the Bible's message. The glory of the Christmas story is the heart of Christian theology. It's contained briefly in that wonderful name that Isaiah said would be given to the Messiah in which Matthew was eager to repeat in telling the story of Messiah's birth. It's all found in that one name, Emmanuel, which is Hebrew, meaning God with us. It's the glory of the Christmas story and the central plank in the Christian message. Christian theology means nothing without it. Without it, every other piece of truth that the, non, that the Christian presents to the non-Christian becomes totally unacceptable. And so you see the glory of the Christmas story. God is with us. But I want you to think a little bit further because though it may seem we have come to some important conclusion here, the true glory of this Christmas glory has yet to be seen. What is the true glory of this glorious message that God has become man? The mystery of the Incarnation was expressed well in the words of the Athanasian Creed. Listen to this. Athanasius wrote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, perfect God and perfect man, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. Very well-worded theology. Precise, faithful, true to the Scriptures. God did not cease being God and transform himself into another kind of being, namely man. But rather, God took into his very being manhood. He united to himself a human nature. And so Jesus is the God-man, not two Jesuses, not two Christ, not two persons, one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. Oh, there's a great mystery there. And as Packer would say, we actually get two mysteries for the price of one because in Jesus Christ we see not only the uniting of God and man, the incarnation, but we see the truth of the Trinity, that God has three persons, Jesus the Son of God is fully God and fully man. You know, we could easily be tempted to seek in this truth of the Incarnation the wondrous and the glorious depth of the miracle involved. We may be tempted to look at that and to think about the question, how could the infinite creator become a finite human creature? It's a great miracle there. Or we could be tempted to search for a better understanding of the miracle of how a virgin could conceive. Our thoughts could readily be distracted into contemplating the philosophical and the psychological and the physiological dimensions of the incomprehensible, glorious miracle that took place when God was enfleshed, when God became incarnate 
in Christ. But as wondrous and as marvelous as that truth in its miraculous dimensions is, we'd still be missing the true glory of the glory of the Christmas story. And so I return to Packer, where he tells us in his book, writing about the biblical message of the Incarnation, the taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should set it before ourselves and ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. Listen to those words again. Not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. Let me put it to you another way. The glory of the Christmas story is not so much its reflection upon the power of the Creator displaying His control over all natural laws and created properties, but rather its revelation of the faithful love of the Redeemer. The glory of the Christmas story could easily be thought to be the power of the Creator in doing something very miraculous, making a virgin of a baby, having that baby be God and man together. We might think God's ability to manipulate this created order and to do these wondrous, powerful, almighty things is what's glorious about this story. What a wonder he has done, and certainly he has. But that still doesn't come to the glory of the story because the glory of the story is not the power of the Creator. It's the love of the Redeemer. That God, with all his omnipotence, should be able to make a virgin woman conceive a son, and that the all-powerful Creator should manage to unite human nature to divine, that's not really all that surprising. God has all power. Of course he can make a virgin have a baby. Of course he can use creation and even the body of, a, of, of this child to be united to divinity, that he'd be the God-man. Being omnipotent, such ability can be taken for granted. What cannot be taken for granted is that God should exercise his almighty power in this fashion for the sake of salvation. The incarnation, you see, is much more than a marvel of nature. The wonder of it is God's grace. Look at the glory sung by the angels. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 that the glory of the Lord shone round about them when the angels came. And that's what terrified them, for God had shown forth. He had manifested his glory. And as it shone through to the angels and lit up the whole area round about, it put the shepherds in fear. And they should have been in fear, because you know what the glory of God means? The glory of God means that we're exposed, that our sin is showing, that our dark hearts are seen for what they are. The glory of God means his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and his truth. It means when God arises that we must be smitten. It means that when God rises up, those who have been at war with him must suffer defeat. When the glory of God comes, that means the shame of man must be destroyed. And so the Bible says they were sore afraid to use the King James. They were terrified because God's glory was shining round about them. And the first word from the angels is, don't be afraid. We have good news. Good news. And at the end of the story, verse 20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. What is it that the shepherds heard? What is the glory of this story? 
The glory of the story is found in the identity of the baby born at Bethlehem. Right there in verse 11, the angel says, Today in the town of David, someone's been born. Who? Babies are born all the time. The glory of the story is who that baby was. For who has been born? A Savior. Who is the Messiah? The Lord. Look at all three of those titles. Savior. He has come not to rise up in judgment on you, but to come to save you from your sin. The Messiah, the one that you've been looking for ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. From the very beginning, the promises of God have centered on this one, the anointed one of God. As Paul could say, however so many be the promises of God, they are yes and amen in Christ. All of God's promises in the Old Testament, all of God's redemptive dealing in the Old Testament, everything he did with the Hebrews was looking forward to this one called the Messiah. And he will be your Lord, not just your judge, your Lord. And so the identity of the one born at Bethlehem is so important. And then the multitude of heavenly hosts come and they sing glory to God in the highest. But why? Why the glory of this story? Why should God in the highest be given a hymn of praise? What is it that brings about this overwhelming song of adoration to the Most High God? What is the glory that attaches to God because of this event? And the answer is right there in what is so often mistranslated. The answer is, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The glory of the Christmas story is not a wonder of nature, the Incarnation but that the incarnation should be exercised for our salvation. It's a wonder of grace. On earth, there is peace to men on whom God's favor rests. There is peace where there should be alienation, where there should be opposition, where there should be judgment and distress. The angel says, no, I have good news. Peace. God has a message of peace for those who are at war with him. God is reconciled to man. And this peace is on earth. It's a present reality. It's part of human experience. It's not in some remote, disembodied realm. It's not apple pie in the sky by and by. It's not if you hope and believe the pure in heart can possibly see it. It's peace on earth with concrete consequences and results. Something that's part of your life now peace now on earth and this present experience of saving peace is for men on whom God's favor rests it's a message of grace a message of God favoring man with salvation it's a message of God giving a gift which none of us deserve the glory of the Christmas story is found in John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave. Think about that. God so loved the world. Arminians, to be very brief about this, don't understand John 3.16. John is not saying God so loved, meaning it was so broad a love that it encompassed the world, meaning the scope of all creation and all mankind. God so loved the world. No, it is not the breadth of God's love, it's the depth of God's love that John's talking about 
that God so loved the world, the realm of rebellion, the realm of sin, the realm of rejection of his claims, that God loves the angels is understandable, that God should love the created inanimate world is understandable, that God should love the animals is understandable, but that he loves the sinful fallen world. He so loves that he gives. It's the measure of love. You understand that in your own experience? If you understand it in your experience, you must understand then the significance of what John's telling us. Love means giving. God so loved the world that he gave. And you know what he gave? His one and only son. He didn't have another one to give. His unique son. You see here something far greater than Abraham willing to sacrifice the son of promise because God told him. Because you see, Abraham's son is restored to him and a ram in the thicket dies. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gives and gives. There's the glory of Christmas. The merchants understand it. Oh, they've perverted it. Oh, they've misapplied it. And children, in their own way, understand the glory of Christmas, though they may not put it in its proper context. But this morning I want you to know that the glory of Christmas is giving because God gave. I was asked recently, why do we give gifts at Christmas? Is it because the wise men gave gifts to Jesus as a baby? Well, that's a credible hypothesis, but it's not correct. No, we don't give gifts at Christmas because the wise men gave gifts to Jesus. We give gifts at Christmas because we want to reflect the attitude of our Heavenly Father who gave gifts to us. No, He gave a gift to us, the supreme gift, His only Son. Let's pray. Lord, help us to feel the true glory of this day that we celebrate today. The glory that you love us, though we are sinful and unclean, though we are rebellious against you, we transgress your law, we are unfaithful, and there is nothing good in us that you still give us gifts, that you love us, that you care for us, and above all, you are faithful to fulfill your promises to send a Messiah, a Savior, our very Lord, so that we might be made right with you. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. How we thank you for the glory of that gift. For we pray in his name. Amen.